0: You know, it reminds me of a quote from Tom Robbins, where he said, like, uh, you've called in to work sick, but have you ever called in well? It would go something like this. I've been sick ever since I started this job. Today, I'm not calling in sick. I'm calling in well, and I won't be coming back.
1: Welcome to the Inspire podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Eignel, president and CEO of the Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. So my guest on the Inspire podcast today is... Ronan Levy. Ronan is uh, chairman of uh, Field Trip Health, a uh, psychedelics company that I know. When we re- were recording this on in March, uh, congratulations! I know you you did the biggest equity issuing of any Canadian psychedelics company. So, uh, congrats on that. Thank you. And uh, you've also created a lot of companies. You've sold some companies. So, uh, I think we could just call you what uh, an entrepreneur as well sure we can we can go with that uh maybe a hopeless entrepreneur
0: uh or (laughs) hopeless and hope i don't know yeah something like that thanks for coming on oh my
1: pleasure so yeah so let's let's go way back you know you you finished university you became a lawyer your path seemed to be set talk to me about how uh how that path didn't end up being as fulfilling as you thought and what led to your your kind of career
0: epiphanies I really got sucked into Uh, you know, there's a bit of a vortex that like, once you're in law school, you're kind of on a path and and all of the corporate Bay street law firms come dangling around and offering you a lot more money. You know, at the time, I, I, you know, if you get a summer job or an articling job, you get paid something like $65,000 a year. And I thought that was more money than I could ever possibly spend. I've since (laughs) wisened up that it's not easy to, to live a life, especially with kids and family and all that kind of stuff on, on $65,000 a year. But at the time I was blown away by the money and and you Really get sucked into that path. And so I, I summered an article that Blake's, which is a very prestigious law firm. Uh, and if I thought the people at law school were not my people, the people at Blake's were definitely not my people, but I was really kind of committed to the path and, and enjoyed you know some of the perks that, that went along with that. Uh, when I went back and became a first year associate, like I was just miserable. I was just genuinely unhappy with my life, being on call perpetually to do work that uh, is insufferable at best and soul sucking at worst. At least for me, you know, it just killed me. Like I, I, I I'd never got diagnosed as being clinically depressed, but I bet if I went back and and wrote like the the. PQH9 or the GAD7 objective questionnaires, I would have been clinically diagnosed as depressed. I just hated my life. And I remember having this moment of awareness where uh, it was right after New Year's, I was a first year associate, no, I was an arcling student. Uh, and there was a, a pool in, in the building that I lived in with my brother and I was floating in the water. And I had this realization that happiness in life doesn't come uh, from success. It comes from feeling like you're making progress towards your goals. Uh, and at that moment, I kind of got up and said, well, you know, doing this is not my goal. This is miserable. What are my goals? And I kind of set a list of things I wanted to do, like playing a band again and get out of working at a law firm and all of these other things. And, you know, I just started making progress one step at a time towards that and eventually managed to escape Blake's and, and got an in-house law job at a, at, at a pharma company and then jumped to a a much more entertaining uh, job where I got to be <laughs> the 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 lawyer at uh, MTV Canada and Much Music, which played out a childhood fantasy of, of living a rock and roll lifestyle. And even though I was a lawyer doing, you know, pretty menial work as far as being a lawyer goes, getting to hang out with like musicians and rock stars and all these people on TV that I idolized was, was pretty fun. But, uh, you know, it, it eventually, uh, came to an end and I became the general counsel for an online dating company that I generally don't disclose anymore, uh, cause it doesn't help my cause, but it's one that was doing things that many th- people think would be questionable, both on its face and, uh, as well as, uh, you know, some internal practices because of the internal practices, I left quickly. You and you know, did I, take, uh, I have
1: to say, you did take a lot of ribbing from, uh, <laughs> from our friends and myself included for that, uh, that interesting, uh, career diversion.
0: <laughs> it was an interesting career diversion. You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about, um, what the company did and whether I was comfortable with. And what I came to was, a high level, I was comfortable with it because at the end of the day, I respect adults to make informed decisions for themselves and no one else should be judging them for decisions they make if they're not hurting other people. And, you know, so I was okay with it from that perspective, but to the extent that I was actively involved in hurting other people, that was not something that I was okay with. So, so I subsequently left and that's when I struck out to become an entrepreneur. But one of the important lessons I took from, you know, that opportunity was just seeing that there's a whole world of things that people view was, you know, icky or gauche or, you know, not respectful. Um, and that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of judgment built into that and, and that there was opportunity, is a lot of opportunity to wade into these areas that other people wouldn't go because of their reputation, because, uh, you know, of the judgment and shame potentially associated within those areas that if you felt comfortable bringing you know authenticity and legitimacy and thoughtfulness you could create real value not just for yourself but you know in changing minds and changing attitudes and and making having just more compassion for people uh, and what they choose to do and that was uh, i think a really important lesson i took out of that experience So there was just so much opportunity there yeah, even though that company was not meant for me because of some of the practices that were happening it was a lesson that i brought
1: forward to the, to the rest of my career yeah i think that that kind of career in a decade and you know your your self-awareness that law was not for you or at least big big firm law that you um you know want to be a different person is is something that really cuts to the heart of like what it means to lead is that you have to start by knowing yourself and you know i think a lot a lot of people do get into the career track as you said you know whether it's a law firm or corporation or you know a business degree or there's a kind of a clear, simple, it's, it's challenging to achieve success in, but it's a, it's a clear path to follow. You just, you know, check this box and that box. How, how do you think someone who's on that path, like what advice would you give to start that process of self-reflection when maybe things aren't, aren't as bad as they were for you, but maybe there's some unfulfillment for someone they're like, hmm, you know, how do I, how do I take that time to step away? What questions should they ask?
0: You know, it's it's hard to set um, a frame of questions because instinctually and immediately that puts it into the rational mind, hmm. uh, which is not an, an, a bad thing. But I think the, the real truth of it is to understand why you're feeling what you're feeling is to recognize that these are feelings, right? Like that's an important consideration Mm -hmm. and feelings aren't necessarily rational. So, um, if you try to rationalize your feelings, you're kind of defeating the underlying essence of what a feeling is. So it's really just about checking in with yourself, uh, and just listening and being like, God, I feel anxious. Why do I feel anxious? What's bothering me? And the answers aren't always clear. Um, but sometimes they are. Uh, and even if the answers aren't clear, you can kind of just do the, the mental exercise of like, how good would it feel if I quit?" my job tomorrow but god it feels so good to um uh you know not have to go to work and not deal with that boss and not deal with all that mundane stuff okay And, and just recognize like wow there's a powerful feeling in there so then you can kind of go deeper into like okay what is it specifically about going in and talking to my boss or doing this work that i don't like and you can kind of follow that arc instead of trying to like you know ask too many questions or create those lists um uh, I think is, is important. It's just listening to, your, to yourself um, and where your passion lies and, and where those negative feelings lie and where the positive feelings lie. You know, it reminds me of a quote from Tom Robbins, where he said like, uh, you've called into work sick, but have you ever called in well? It would go something <laughs> like this. I've been sick ever since I started this job. Today, I'm not calling in sick. I'm calling in well, and I won't be coming back call in well. Um, and like, it really is one of those things. It's like, what makes you feel good to be alive? Uh, and and really trying to understand what that is. And, you know, for a lot of people, and for me, part of it was feeling the sense of freedom to explore all of the crazy ideas that I had in my head. You know, when you have a boss, you're working within a framework by and large of predefined rules of what is acceptable and what's not acceptable and where you can go and where you can't go. And when you don't have a boss, you, you don't have that. And, and that can be wonderful and it can be Terrifying at the same time.
1: So you had that freedom. You you left kind of your last true job. How would it yeah. go? But I actually
0: went back into the practice of law to try and pay the bills while you know things were going on. But just freelance work. And again, it was you know I don't I don't love. The practice of law, because so much of it is just like purely hyper rational drafting logic contracts, all that kind of stuff. And that's just not what gets my energies going. But it gave me an opportunity to meet a lot of really interesting people and pay the bills and and start the first business and, and the first business that I started. Was in one of those realms that you know most people would never uh, wade into, but if you brought again, like the the legitimacy and transparency and honesty of trying to do it in a way that's respectful, there's a great opportunity. And and so we opened uh, along with again another mutual friend, uh, Philippe Bernier, uh, a company called Toronto Gold, which is a cash for gold buyer. Which on its face, you know, and truthfully, my reaction was like, who would want to do that? But then I realized there's a really good opportunity there, you know, and even though it wasn't necessarily my dream job, I saw it as a very powerful stepping stone to start learning and get credibility and start, you know, understanding what it really meant to be an entrepreneur, which turned out to be way harder than I thought it would be. Uh, and, and it's and still it was, going. Uh, we
1: should we should plug it, right? It's still going. Yeah, yeah.
0: Tro- tro- Toronto Gold is still going. And what we <laughs> did is we kind of looked and we said, you know, what was the ich- icky factor of the of cash for gold buyers? And it was just like the... The the seediness of trying to rip people off. Like uh, I will I, I will rip on our competitors having had firsthand experiences. It's like if you go in and you try and sell old jewelry, they're gonna try and give you the lowest price that you think you'll you'll take, right? And you know that's just not a nice way to deal with people. You know, always being on guard, being are these people gonna try and rip me off? Like how much do I have to fight for this? It's kind of like the whole used car salesman experience, and and I don't think most people want to live a life like that. Uh, and so with Toronto Gold, we we eliminated that. That. We kind of put our prices online. So if you brought in a piece of jewelry, we'd test it in front of you. We'd tell you exactly what it weighs, exactly what quality of gold it was, and exactly what our price per gram was of that quality of gold. And then you were free to take it or leave it. And, and there was no haggling. There was no hassle. There was no negotiation. It was just really Easy, and I think how people want to deal with uh, businesses these days, and, and and so it's been a you know pretty good success. I wouldn't say it's a smashing success, but it continues to operate. You know, it continues to give people jobs. My mom still works there. Um, oh, good. That's good. Yeah, that's, yeah. You know, that's great. <laughs> And and so it really served a, a great purpose, and it opened a lot of doors for me. Through that, I got to join EO, um, and met. You know, uh, I, I can point to a few pivotal moments in my life. Uh, you know, those sliding door moments, without which I wouldn't be where I am right now, almost certainly. And and one of those pivotal moments was that through Toronto Gold, I joined an organization called EO Entrepreneurs Organization. Where a gentleman by the name of Jason Gaynard, uh, who runs a community organization business, I don't know exactly how he defines it, called Mastermind Talks, uh, which is really a, a collection of some of the most wonderful entrepreneurs I've ever met—really thoughtful, self-aware, helpful, kind people—and uh, and through that and attending his mastermind conferences, you know, I, I created, you know, kept the awareness of of what I wanted to do next because after opening Toronto gold and bringing in people to, to run it because I didn't really want to run it, uh, and doing some freelance legal work, a number of really interesting opportunities emerged. And I had a hard time, um, you know, trying to choose which one I wanted to pursue, always kind of being inclined with that financial anxiety from being a kid, uh, to grab the lowest hanging fruit. But I, I remember distinctly at, at the first mastermind talks conference I went to, one of the exercises was, um, in I think it was 90 days, Jason was going to write you a letter asking you, had you pursued the avenue, your business or entrepreneurial ambitions or goals that you set forth on that day? And like he invited you to spend like 20 minutes, just thinking about like, what do you want to do? Like, what is success to you right now? Like what, what is that achievement? And I wrote that down. Like I wanted to make, you know, this idea of doing something in the cannabis industry that we had been percolating on a reality that I wanted that to be my thing. Um, And, uh, and like 30 or 60 days later, when he wrote that letter saying like, have you made progress on this? The answer I could say was genuinely, yes, you know, I committed to myself to it. And, and, you know, the rest is, is kind of history.
1: You were kind of wrestling from what you're saying with these, with these competing things, you know, you had the desire to have security in the business, but you also had the sense that there, was possibility, there were possibilities out there to really create something if you were willing to be in the spaces that others weren't. And I know that all came together uh, with uh, with the cannabis industry. So maybe just talk a bit about you know how you went from lawyer to entrepreneur in, in perhaps an unexpected way.
0: Yeah, from lawyer to entrepreneur, back to lawyer, back to entrepreneur, yeah. I, I think is the, is the appropriate description. So, so I'm That's assuming been... you're
1: never going to go back to lawyer now. <laughs> God willing. (laughs) Um, uh,
0: So what happened was, uh, again, going back to the conversations of wading into things, you know, as as Billy Corgan says, where boys fear to tread, uh, what happened was through my, you know, legal practice, uh, that was really just part-time and enabled me to pay the bills. I got introduced to, uh, the people that would become my business partners in the cannabis industry and, and beyond, um, Joseph Del Moral and Hanan Flyman, uh, and, and, and Leo who has since left the business. But, um, I met them from the perspective of providing some legal advice to them, but I had a lot of insight into terms of what was happening in the startup world in Toronto because I was working with a lot of them. Uh, I managed to carve out a niche for myself as a lawyer, as you know, a digital startup tech lawyer kind of person. And so they had just sold a business, left their golden handcuffs had come off. And just a, a sidebar, you know, I think, I think the uh, the golden handcuff, handcuffs, the 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 curse of the middle ca- class, is one of the most insidious challenges of our modern Western world. Which is like, you know, if you got if you got a good job and a bit of money, you know, and you have family and responsibilities, it's really hard. It's really that much more stressful to take a chance and leave because you don't have, you know, you don't just bear the responsibility. There are other people who bear the responsibility of that decision as well. I was fortunate, I, you know, I was single as living by myself. If I was a total failure, you know, I had friends, I had family, I, I had a safety net that would make it a lot safer. So I, I recognize that I had a lot of privilege and opportunity as scary as it still was at the time to, to make some leaps that other people don't have. So I think everyone has to be, you know, also honest about um, where they are and, and the truth of their situation. But um, you know, at that time I, I met, uh, Joseph and, and Hanan and, and they were trying to create a new business. They were ideating on a whole bunch of things and, um, I was helping them from a legal perspective, but also from an ideation perspective. And, and so the story goes, they, they started one of the ideas. I did some legal work for it and they got it off the ground and they quickly shut it down because it wasn't working. So they went back to the drawing board, quite literally a whiteboard in their office on Queen street. And uh, we met because they wanted to sort of just talk through their ideas and get my feedback. And they had like 10 ideas listed on the whiteboard. And we kind of went through all of them. And apparently I said all of them were, um, you know, less than ideal. Uh, I probably used (laughs) words a little more more colorful than that. And, you know, as I was putting on my jacket, Joseph was like, well, there's this one other idea that, um, you know, we could do, but we're not really interested in it. Cause it seems so, you know, yucky. It just seems like so gross. And I'm like, what's that? And they're like, well, laws around medical cannabis in Canada are changing. And there's an opportunity to create an online marketplace where people get information about the different providers of medical cannabis and all the different strains. And I was like, And why aren't you guys doing that already? Mm. You know, you so rarely get an opportunity Mm. where you don't have to worry about product market fit. You know, we know people like cannabis. We know people consume cannabis. You know, if you're giving legal cover to that now, this is an amazing opportunity. And for me, even though I wasn't a big cannabis advocate, I I was definitely, you know, socially progressive and socially liberal being like, it it is absolutely crazy to put people in jail for, you know, what is this Mm -hmm. relatively speaking harmless substance, like the harms of trying to enforce these laws, which are, you know, the laws are just ridiculous. And I can go on a huge diatribe about that, but I won't, you know, the harms associated with enforcing these laws are way worse than the ill they're trying to protect against. So, you know, even if we wade into this industry and all we do is give people legal cover to, to use use cannabis or smoke mm-hmm. weed colloquially. Uh, I'm okay with that. That is to me is a success. And if we grow an amazing business out of that, then like, it's a win-win because I've done something I genuinely believe is right. And we've had a great success do well. And you know, what's mm-hmm. the expression you can uh, do well by doing good. And they're like, bah, but cannabis seems like such a shady industry. <laughs> um, you know, we don't want to get involved with that. And I'm like, it may be, it may be not, but the truth is like, I've just come from opening a cash for gold business. The last <laughs> business I had a job in. In, you know, a super, you know, questionable. It's like legal cannabis is going to be the most legitimate thing I do. Um, so if you guys aren't going to do it, then I'm going to do this because this is too good of an opportunity to pass up. And so after cajoling them for a while, they, they kind of got their heads around it and, and we all joined forces. And out of that Canadian cannabis clinics and canvas RX was born, uh, which grew to become the largest network of cannabis specialized medical clinics in Canada, uh, which we then sold to Aurora cannabis Inc, which we helped grow into one. Largest global producers of cannabis, and uh, it was it was an amazing, incredible ride. And you know, not only did it change their minds uh, about cannabis, which had gone from a very negative perspective uh, to positive, it, it really changed my mind as well because I went in from the perspective of cannabis is like, you know, it's it's a drug of illicit use. I'll say that. Right. I was really <laughs> agnostic, if uh, skeptical at best to the therapeutic applications of cannabis. Uh, but again, philosophically, I thought, you know, it was okay to do this, even though I didn't necessarily believe it was quote unquote medicine uh, because there's other philosophical 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 considerations for me that made me passionate about, you know, moving forward with this. turns out that cannabis is an incredibly potent medicine. Uh, you know, we helped 150,000 Canadians access the legal medical cannabis system and almost uniformly everybody came back and these were genuinely sick people. This wasn't just like the 27 year old stoner who was looking for, you know, cover to, Mm -hmm. to get his weed. These were genuinely sick people who had tried just about every avenue, um, Mm for some relief and finally turn to cannabis usually not always, but usually as, as a last resort option because nothing else had worked. And for so many of those people, it was truly life-changing, you know, for some people, mm-hmm. it, whatever they use the cannabis for, it helped it resolve or it helped to manage them symptoms beautifully. For other people, we heard the feedback, like, yeah, it did nothing for my back pain, but you know what? I slept through the night last night. And that's the first time I've done that in seven years. And that wow. alone has changed my life. And you hear this story over and over. And then you talk to the physicians, um, you know, that eventually started working with, with us and almost uniformly, they're going to tell you that cannabis has been the single most effective therapeutic agent that they've worked with. Um, and it's funny because when we started, the hardest part was finding a doctor who would work with us. It was almost hmm. impossible. You know, we had that one uh, bright light who's still a wonderful friend and, and a great person, Dr. Barry Waysglass, um, who agreed to come on. He had just retired from his family practice, but, uh, you know, being a, a, a hippie in his youth, still believed in the therapeutic potential of cannabis. Uh, and he, he came on and, you know, he brought a lot of credibility. He's not the kind of guy that you would think would be a cannabis doctor. He's, you know, he's in his mid 60s, looks very respectful speaks exactly like you'd expect a doctor to speak and he helped us build it and uh, the reaction from the medical community to what we were doing was almost immediately negative but um, what we started to hear was doctors saying I have patients who want to access medical cannabis. I will not, for the life of me, ever touch that stuff. Uh, but if there's someone, if there's a doctor who will help them, you know, explore cannabis, uh, I'd be really grateful if if I could refer my patients to them for that. And uh, so that's what we started doing. And then what happened is those doctors who were so skeptical about cannabis started seeing how positively it was affecting their patients and improving their quality of lives. And, and slowly but surely, over the course of a year or two attitudes changed dramatically because we were focused on doing really good medicine and creating really good results. And, and that's what we did. Uh, and I think, you know, it was pretty instrumental, I think, to the overall evolution of, of medical cannabis and, uh, adult use cannabis in Canada and, and certainly globally, uh, our focus on just showing that this is really good medicine. Again, even though I came in hyper skeptical, hmm. uh, I, I was open-minded enough to see the possibility and, and through that experience and becoming aware of it, it really created the foundation for the work we're, we're doing in psychedelics as well.
1: Yeah, and I think you know a couple things that just stand out from your story is, are you know first you've met, you met with a lot of resistance, you know not only mm-hmm. uh, from, from your your ultimate business partners even were resistant at first, uh, but second you know your ability to connect. To a larger purpose that really resonated in you, you know, some belief that you have. And I think, you know, when you're when we're talking about vision um, and we'll talk about field trip in a moment, but it strikes me that, you know, when you're dealing with that resistance first from your own partners, then from the marketplace, then from, you know, doctors that you just need that deep level of conviction. And so I I think back to the work that you did personally, uh, you know, the self-awareness that I imagine was was very helpful because you knew that you were you know you saw something in the space and then it sounds like you developed that level of belief in the impact that you that you were having is that fair
0: yeah i mean uh i developed my belief in the impact that we we're having but i knew that there was going to be enough impact you know like i said if if all we were doing was giving people a uh, permission to not go to jail for using cannabis it's like that it was something been, i it would have been impact. enough Right. That would have been enough, you know, and, you know, it's always for for me and and maybe I'm just weird on this point, but when I face resistance, you know, I actually get excited, you know, <laughs> it really steals my resolve because when people have resistance, it means that there's something that, you know, scares them or frightens them or hurts them or anything along those lines. And those are the opportunities of where real growth happens. You know, I, as a kid, um, I remember this, uh, we used to get the Globe and Mail and, at the bottom right corner of the front page for a long time of the Globe and Mail, they had, um here's was like a quote of the day kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly what it was called, but I remember reading it once and it, it, it was a quote from Mark Twain, who they described as the stern foe of all sham. And at the time, <laughs> I had no idea what that meant, but it totally resonated with me. And I cut it out and I put it in my wallet, even though I didn't know really what it meant. It, was <laughs> it that sounded I, cool. I, I kind of instinctively believed in. And, you know, that's really what what I've come to like embrace, which is like, there's so much artifice in this world. There's so much, so much judgment. There's so many preconceived notions that are often based on political ambition uh or ideologies or racism or sexism or all sorts of things that like when you really go into it you realize that don't they just don't have much validation uh when it comes to being honest um and so you know when i encounter resistance but i feel like there's there's real truth behind where i'm trying to go you know it 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 just confirms for me that like if people are afraid to go here, there's 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 right. something really really powerful behind this wall. Go there, go yeah, where others go exactly. to. Exactly. At said. least ex- explore it. Like you know, it doesn't mean you have to embark your entire life to pursuing it. But understand why that's there, and, and really kind of connect with. Do I agree with this, or is this just BS? Right. Um, huh. And you know, if if it's the latter, uh, then
1: you know there's wonderful opportunities to be had, both in terms of personal growth, but usually in business as well. Let's talk about your most recent venture because it sounds like everything that you've described like, you know, finding that space where there's resistance, um, you know, having the courage, you know, having a belief in what that you would make an impact all kind of have been magnified in the creation of field trip health. How did it all start? Like where this where this idea come from? Um, so
0: it it really was another one of those sliding door moments. So um, much like what happened with the cannabis, uh, the the origins of our cannabis business. Um, what had happened was that Joseph, uh, the CEO of Field Trip and one of my business partners after we had left Aurora, had met with a woman named Ju- Judy Bloomstock, uh, who is the CEO of a company called Diamond Therapeutics. Uh, and she was looking to raise ca- uh, cash for uh, Diamond, um, which was looking to develop novel formulations of psilocybin uh, as, as a business. And uh, he came out of that meeting and uh, was like, oh, who were you meeting with? Because uh, we were sharing an office. And he was like, oh, uh, you know, uh, Judy, she's starting something with psilocybin. And I'm like, you mean like magic mushrooms? And he's like, Yeah. He's like, But, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really understand. I'm not that interested. I'm like, Wait, wait, wait. You know, are, are, is this becoming a thing? And he's like, <laughs> Maybe. Um, and uh, so I'm like, can, can we set up another meeting with her? I'd like to understand more. So we set up another meeting with Judy. This was in 2000, middle, uh, middle to early 2018. And, um, you know, she just clued us into this zeitgeist that was happening that, you know, I think was. Way more present than almost anybody would really appreciate. But she pointed out that Maps, which is a nonprofit organization in the U.S., had just been granted break breakthrough therapy designation for uh, by the FDA to use MDMA-assisted psychotherapy to treat PTSD. You know, and to get breakthrough designation means that not only like do you have something promising, like very promising, but it's re- re- reaching a significant unmet need. So all of a sudden, like the the, the Food and Drug Administration, you know, which isn't the DEA. But, you know, a a very, very powerful arm of the US government that you think would be utterly opposed to MDMA not only was permitting clinical trials, but was accelerating clinical trials for MDMA assisted therapy. And it was like, oh, okay. And it was right around the time that. Michael Pollan had written *How to Change Your Mind*, which was—if you haven't read it, you should. You know, an exploration where he personally volunteered to go through all of these different underground psychedelic therapies using psilocybin and LSD and all of these different molecules, and talk about his experience. And again, you know, it was coming from the perspective of a a very respected journalist who was in his 50s or 60s. You know, it's not—it's not exactly the kind of person you think would be writing a story about um, psychedelics, but it—it brought a level of, I think, just legitimacy to it and, and the research studies that were going on as well you know in canada at that time five or six online stores openly selling magic mushrooms hmm. were operating you know not dark web right on the w- right. world wide web there they were selling mushrooms i was like oh my god something is happening here um but the thing that really and and so you know naturally just having been in the cannabis industry we kind of gravitated towards right. well you know here's there's a natural parallel but what really uh caught me and and, and engendered the passion that I have for the work we're doing right now um, much more powerfully truthfully than I ever had for cannabis was uh, Judy described a single psilocybin assisted therapy session being like 10 years of therapy in an afternoon and I was like if there's any truth to that even though it is you know probably a, a massive exaggeration if Psychedelic drugs are the impetus that gets people to start thinking about, you know, their emotional and mental health differently. If it if it's the platform that gets people to think about their mental and emotional health is something that should be pursued proactively. Much like we know that going to the gym and working out makes us stronger and healthier and live longer and happier. We know doing that proactively is a good thing. We don't all do it, but we accept it to be true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. People don't think that way about their mental or emotional health. We're reactive. We, we go to couples therapy when we're having a hard time in our relationship or when we're depressed or, or when we're anxious or anything along those lines. But if people could start doing that proactively, and proactively pursue their own growth and their awareness. Like there would, is not uh, a more impactful thing that I think I can be doing in my life than to change that narrative. And if psychedelics are the platform that drives that, then amazing, we're doing psychedelics. And of course, <laughs> much like with the cannabis uh, opportunity, there was immediate resistance, being like, "There's no opportunity here. Like, what could we possibly do?" Um, you know, all of the unlike cannabis, where the laws had changed, psychedelics are still all scheduled. And so I was like, "I don't know, but we've got to figure it out." And and Compass Pathways had. Actually, also been given a company out of the UK had been given breakthrough therapy designation uh, for a clinical trial uh, using psilocybin to treat uh, treatment resistant depression. and so I'm like, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know how we do this, uh, but you know, we've got to find a way. There's just, there's like my gut, my intuition, every part of my body is saying, this is what we have to do. And so we spent a long time close to close to a year, almost just trying to figure out how we hack an opportunity and in, psychedelics, but slowly and surely, as we reflected and thought and explored and talked, um, you know, the foundation of what was to become field trip was formed And in, in April of 2019, we incorporated. And set to work building Field Trip,
1: and and here you are. And so, what's the company today?
0: So the company is is truly one of the world leaders in advancing the therapeutic applications of, of psychedelics and psychedelic assisted therapies. So we have two operating divisions right now. We have Field Trip Health, which is building the clinical infrastructure to deliver psychedelic therapies. Unlike most conventional Western medicine where you have a psychedelic experience actually has a significant impact on the therapeutic outcomes. Uh, You'll hear the term set and setting be thrown around. And that refers to the mindset that a person brings into an experience. In other words, the preparation they do, as well as the location of it, that if a person feels comfortable, safe, you know, in a bright location, they're going to have a much more positive and therapeutic experience than if they're in, you know, the white walls and fluorescent lights of a hospital. So you need new infrastructure because most doctor's offices that I know of are not places you'd want to sit and right. you know, have a psilocybin <laughs> experience for four to six hours. Um, and so we have locations in Toronto, New York, LA, Chicago, Atlanta, Houston uh, will be opening soon. Amsterdam will be opening soon. And, and we're just scaling as fast as we can because you know, one of the conclusions I quickly came to was that access to psychedelics would be legal way sooner than anybody would possibly imagine. I think many people are coming to grips with the idea that this is happening fast, but uh, I was sort of saying since 2018, we're going to see legal access to psychedelics, you know, within four to five years, and, and lo and behold, uh, that that is happening. Um, as as we speak the other part of the work we're doing at field trip is developing the next generation of psychedelic molecules which is to say that as great as some of the classic psychedelics are for any number of mental health conditions there are limitations to them you know particularly the long time frames because it is a 4 to 6 hour experience on psilocybin because you have to do the the therapeutic work before and after an experience typically you're looking at a full day in a clinic and when you have a doctor and one or two therapists as well as Other staff, it becomes really expensive. Uh, And even though the results that we're seeing around psychedelic assisted therapies are just mind blowingly positive, you know, we're seeing results suggested that a single psilocybin-assisted therapy session can provide antidepressant effects for up to five years. Um, you know, MDMA, three 3 MDMA-assisted therapy sessions in the phase two clinical trials that MAPS was conducting led to 70% of posit, uh, participants who had chronic severe PTSD for an average of 17 years to no longer qualify as having PTSD according to the DSM-5 manual. So you're, you're looking at an effective cure um, for PTSD, whereas previous standards of care were 30% improvement in symptoms, which is basically nothing at all. Um, and so we're talking game changing, uh, e- effectiveness and, and some of the most intractable conditions that we're facing as a society. And, and it's not just, you know, treating depression. It's like all the follow-on effects, which is the core morbidities associated with depression are, are significant. So, you know, the, co- the hospitalization costs go up, the hospitalizations go up. Um, people miss work, the opportunity cost associated with that. It's just crazy how expensive our ineptitude at treating mental health conditions and emotional health are costing our society. So, um, you know, so with field trip discovery, what we're doing is really focusing on the next generation because the hardest part is just how expensive these therapies are going to be because they do involve such uh, labor intensive care um, for a reasonably long period of time. So we're trying to shrink the time frames for a psychedelic experience um, while not you know, substantially affecting the the therapeutic benefits. So instead of having to commit a whole day to an experience, you can potentially do it
1: in a morning or an afternoon, which would be a short
0: trip. Substanti- <laughs> exactly.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. So. Amazing. Well, I mean, I think it, I think it's just incredible, you know, the, and I, you know, we know we're in an epidemic of mental health uh, challenges in certainly in North America, but in the world, we know the, what's costing us and yet you're right, you know, traditional treatments are not getting it done. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that just as we've seen the impact from the legalization of cannabis and the awareness of the positive impact versus, you know, contrast that with the opioid crisis. Uh, so, too, is this very promising that people's uh, barriers are coming down and, and leading to better health outcomes. So you've already, it sounds like, made a major impact. Congrats on all you've achieved. My last question for you, are you satisfied? Like, or is there another idea in you still? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. This one, you know,
0: this has been a huge lift, um, uh, and it's been intense and certainly the pandemic ha- has made it that much more intense. Uh, so after this one, uh, unlike the last one, I'm going to force myself to take a real break and, and really evaluate, you know, I, like you, I've got kids about the same age as yours. And, you know, I do feel like um, I'm missing out on a whole bunch of their lives. As much as I love what we're doing right now, there's that inkling in me being like, they're, they're you know, as, as important as the work we're doing is right now. Now there's a lot of important work I need to be doing at home as well. So uh, I I don't know, we'll we'll see, but it's it's a good question.
1: To be be determined. Well, you've certainly shown that um, your self-awareness and uh, knowledge of what drives you has led to some great things. So I can't wait to see what's next. And uh, thanks for sharing your story. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Bart. It's uh, always a pleasure. I hope that conversation with Ronan Levy was as uh, interesting for you as it was for me. It's really neat for someone I've known for two decades to see their career and their personal values and how those you know align and now culminate in something really exciting in field trip. So lots to take away there about following what uh, what drives you and, and sticking to it. Uh, next time on the podcast, I welcome Nancy McKay, and Nancy is the founder of McKayco Forums. Uh, a peer group for senior executives I've been a member uh, over the last decade and Nancy joins me to talk about uh, what her clients what CEOs and executives have been telling her over the last year and uh, preview they're under huge strain as you our listeners might be And so Nancy really outlines how she helps them gain self-mastery and uh, she's a whole methodology that really allows you as an executive, as a leader, to look inward about what drives you, what you need to thrive and gain agency so you can be inspirational. So powerful, very practical conversation. And I look forward to um, posting it and I hope you'll enjoy it. Thanks so much.